starting this podcast right with my voice, not Tony's voice. I don't know who he thinks he is that he's let off the last couple of podcasts, but I'm back. I'm here now, and this is the crucial conversation. I'm not, <laughs> he just threw a stickers at me. This is normal. All right, so with this, hold on. Let me see if I can get this Snickers open while I'm doing these ads. So while he's trying to do some ads, let me go ahead and tell you about why I'm not eating that Snickers bar. I'm full. I just went to Lazari Italian Oven, and Brian, it's better than what you just put in your mouth. That's garbage. I wouldn't had oh some. Gosh. I wouldn't had some royalty. Ain't no marinara on this <laughs> I just went to Lazari's and I got me some pasta. I'm very proud to say I had no issues, no complaints. It's one of my favorite places to issues? go. Zero. None. It's one of my favorite places to go, and uh, I, I I strongly encourage you stop wasting your time trying to cook while you got those presents to wrap while you got that house to clean you know your family's gonna be coming over any minute start to judge you because your house ain't clean because you were too busy cooking dinner don't worry about that let, let, let the folks at lazaris take care of that and if you're too busy to leave the house great they're to go 870-931-4700 let them know that the conversation sent you and you know what stop worrying about what you're gonna have for dinner let them take care of that that's a lazari italian oven Wipe that brow, get the sweat off, and it's time to get fresh and get in the shower and get out of the shower. Oh, but your air don't work and you're sweating already. It's time to fix all that. Anderson Heat and Air, you call them at 870-664-1967. Nat Anderson's going to come over. He's going to look at your air unit. He's going to look at your heater. He's going to make everything work the way it should work. There's no reason to be sweating over your air unit or because it's not working and because it's too loud, because it's releasing a little musky odor and people come over and they look at you funny because they're thinking you passed gas, but it's because your air unit's got something musky in it and moldy in it because you haven't changed the filter in three years that you've been living in the house. And so you need to get with Nat Anderson today. He's going to take care of everything. It's going to be for a decent price. And he's going to work on your schedule. He's going to be there on time. And everything's going to be taken care of at Nat, with Nat Anderson at Anderson Heat and Air. Brian, just the other day we were playing Monopoly. And you could not believe the deal that I had to make with the guy we were playing with. You said, man, you must be crazy. False. I just didn't do good on my ACT because AwesomeScores.com wasn't out yet. I overpaid for some properties because I didn't understand values. If you're in the same situation as me and you got that ACT coming around the corner, don't worry. Go to AwesomeScores.com. Our friend Dave is going to set you up with some good quality training and help you pass that ACT test better than you ever thought you could. Don't worry about the price because with us... Crucial conversation, put in that promo code CRUCIAL and get it for $100 off. That's right, $100. And if you don't need to study every course, you just want to hone in on something specific, Brian, that's only $99, normally $199. I'm telling you, it pays to listen to the conversation. Go to awesomescores.com and get your testing taken care of today. Stop waiting around. Stop waiting around. Get it done today because next week, that's the deadline for those ACT scores. This is a very special podcast because this is the last podcast of the Crucial Conversation. It has been a great run. It's been a great run. What's that, Tony? Oh, 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 Live Oak resigned with the podcast? Oh, okay, never mind. We'll keep going because I would not want to do the Crucial Conversation without Live Oak Real Estate because we need somebody out there that's going to take care of us whenever it's time to get in a new home, whenever it's time to rent, when it's time to buy, when it's time to sell. 
And Dustin Thomas is going to help us out with Live Oak. You can check out his website, listwithliveoak.com, where you can call him and find out about some prices on some homes. It It is going to be at 870-520-2522. Brian, Dr. April Jones is the real deal, and her company is the Drifted Drum Company. If you think that you've got a story to tell, but you don't know how to tell it, and you're kind of ashamed to buy your past, the great thing is you're not defined by your struggles. Get the book, No Mess, No Message, from her website, from anywhere you buy books online. Go directly to her to get an autographed copy. Brian, you got one of those just a couple weeks ago. And she'll take care of you. Listen to her story of how a testimony came out of the test that she was facing. Be encouraged. Go to the driftedrumcompany.com. You can put in promo code CRUCIAL, get 10% off. You'll also get a free companion journal. You can buy you a hat. You can buy you some shirts. Anything that you need there for encouragement, you can find at the driftedrumcompany.com. You're talking about how you wish you had a country girl, but you won't get her no ATV for Christmas. It's time to take care of that. If you if you want to if you want a lady that can go fishing with you and go deer hunting with you, she's only going to go if you get a nice, clean, new ATV. And to get that, you need to go to Jonesboro ATV. You can call them today at eight eight seven zero nine three five two eight eight seven. Or you can go online, check out their website, jonesboroatv.com, and you, you get the prices on all their four-wheelers, all their Can-Ams, all their jet ski. Tell me what all they got, a little bit of everything, golf carts, go-karts. I don't Do they have go-karts? Absolutely. They have go-karts, they too. Have everything. Everything. If it's got four wheels on and an engine, they pretty much got it. And so go, check them out today at Jonesboro ATV. And Jesus says, no, that's not what it's about. It's for the glory of God. And God's really dealing with me. Um, we live in a society that likes to blame others and is always looking to put down others. And I just felt like God doesn't get any glory from that. Those people that Jesus was talking to were trying to blame someone. Jesus is like, wait a minute, this is for the glory of God. And I'm trying to learn that lesson. Don't blame other people. Don't blame situations. Because God has a purpose and wants to be glorified here. And whenever you're doing that, you're not glorifying God. But I got to tell you, it's not an easy lesson to learn because we are all very human. And so you have to pray for me that I do learn the lesson. But I do hope that God was glorified. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. I always sit and contemplate what would make the perfect comic book hero movie. I don't know. It's maybe it's a nerdy thing. You can judge whatever. You know what you're going to say whatever you're going to say anyway. Bible to man. all the to all the listeners. <laughs> but but one character that I always have like kind of mentally struggled with being like, well that would make a great compelling story is actually the character of Superman. Because I always think of Superman as he's so indestructible that that all of his the supposed threats against him are kind of like uh, I mean, they're kind of, they're really no match for him because Superman is pretty much, you know, obviously he's the Superman in just about every way. So, uh, Dr. Paris, we didn't just have you on to talk about heroes, but I am curious, what do you think would be some story arcs that would make a great Superman movie? 
I agree with you. Superman's the big blue boy scout. I mean, he embodies what we want to be, truth, justice, and the American way. But he's fighting a corporate overlord, Lex Luthor, and that just doesn't work. So what I would do is I would uh, bring in uh, Mr. Mitzelflick or Mitzex Pidlick, and I would have him, uh, you know, bring in Lobo. And I would call the movie Superman Soul Survivors because Superman is theoretically the sole survivor of Krypton. Lobo was, is a, a genocidal maniac, a Zarnian, who destroyed his entire planet. And so let's have those two face off because he can actually fight Superman. And you have this wonderful contrast of soul survivors there. And I think they could really go at it. Plus, the bike is, is cool. And oh, yeah. Everybody stop right now looking at your phone. Yes, you've tuned into the Crucial Conversation podcast. It just so happens. What could be more important? Yeah, it just so happens that we are with Dr. Chris Paris. Uh, we're still at Urshan College this week. Uh, this is our last episode in the, uh, of the last few ones that we've done that we're here. But we found out... There's the, more to come. There, yeah, there's more to come. But we found out through the grapevine, Brian, that Dr. Paris is a comic book nerd, superhero nerd, just like you. I don't know if they put it in those terms. That's, no, that's a pretty uh, black and white statement. But... Uh, <laughs> Actually, one thing that, that was, was brought up about it is how you'll actually use some of the, the comic books to kind of present um, with, with your teaching. How do you, you take your, um, the, the comic books and the Bible and kind of bring it all together in a lesson? Yeah, I'd say we're more than nerds. We're aficionados. Let's, <laughs> let's say what we better. really are. That is far better. There are lots of nerds. Well, one of the big things I do is with Superman because Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, who created Superman, were Jewish. And so we talk about scenes that are prominent, not only in the Bible, but continue to repeat themselves throughout history. And so we see with Superman, a parent fears for a child's safety, puts it in a vessel, sets it adrift, it's found by an adoptive parent. Well, that's the story of Moses, a little bit different. We're not going through space, we're going on the Nile River. But it's essentially the same story. And you have different heroes in a basket in different cultures that we can look to. Um, even, in, even in India, we have, have uh, an example of that. And so I talk to them about that and make that connection and how these stories keep repeating themselves. And a lot of times people have heard the story of Moses over and over and don't recognize it. And one of the other big things that I do with Superman is to try to get people to realize, you know what, the Bible is really old and we don't know all the historical context. And so I ask them, I say, why does everyone make fun of Superman for wearing his underwear on the outside of his costume? And mm -hmm. most people don't have any answer. Well, Siegel and Schuster, who were Jewish, when they created Superman, they were also influenced by the circus of the day and the strongmen of the circus. That's how he dressed. Now, that's less, you know, 1938, when Superman was created, is less than 100 years ago, and we've already lost that key thing. What else have we lost that we don't understand about the Bible? Well, that's, you know, over 2,000 years. So it's yeah. a good way to get them thinking. So when, when they're thinking, what's something uh, that, that comes to your mind that it's something that we have lost because we're so far removed time-wise from the original writings of the, the Old Testament and the New Testament? I mean, I think there can be a, a variety of things that we, we try to understand and, and get back to. Some of it can be something like a concept like faith. 
was, is a good way. A lot of my students enjoy a lecture I do on faith. How is New Testament faith different from Old Testament faith? So we really think of New Testament faith as in, you know, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, look at the Old Testament. Uh, there was a scholar named Delbert Hillers who wrote a commentary on limitations, and he says more often than not in the Old Testament when they talk about faith, they say perhaps or maybe or who knows, which don't sound like faith words, but Jonathan says, you know, let's go and maybe God will be with us. The most famous example would be Esther uh, is, is told by Mordecai, who knows where the year come to the kingdom for a time such as this. And so what I've found in the class is there's a great Old Testament faith there that's very different than the way we think about faith. And uh, sometimes I, I want to, you know, tell sinners who come into our churches, you know, maybe if you could just say who knows or maybe perhaps maybe you're seeing everybody dancing around, shouting around, you feel like they've got great faith. If you could just do this, it would be awesome. And what I also love about Old Testament faith is it respects the sovereignty of God because I feel like New Testament faith is the same way, but we've forgotten about the sovereignty of God. And so it adds that new dimension. So I want to ask you about your readings. Um, has there ever been a time you were kicked back at your house reading a comic book and you put the leg rest down real quick and dropped your comic book because instantly you related what you were reading to a scripture? Yeah, I mean, I think that's happened a lot. I'm surprised at how much comics reference scripture and it will just explicitly reference. I think the most unique experience I had recently is I was reading a Batman comic book called Cold Days and it was a great premise. Batman uh, captures Mr. Freeze and Mr. Freeze is implicated in a murder. Well, it just so happens that Bruce Wayne gets put on the jury and Bruce Wayne thinks that Batman is wrong and didn't get everything right. And there was a quote from the book of Job in there and it was just very explicit. And so this actually happens to me quite a lot. I just sit down to read comic books for fun. I get a lot of them from the public library and then there's something there. I'm like, wow, did they just take this off the pages of the Bible? Give us an example of uh, one that just you couldn't believe the connection that was so evident. Oh, that would, yeah, there's a, a lot of them. Um, well, I know a lot of people have, have talked about uh, Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen. I mean, I think that's the one that just keeps coming back and forth. And the one I really appreciated recently, X-Men did a series with um, X-Man, who is the version of Cable from an alternate universe. And they make him this Christ figure, and he creates a new version of the Four Horsemen where they are trying to bring good to the earth and trying to restore the earth. And I, that was one of the ones that really captured my attention because X-Men keeps having these variations of the Four Horsemen of Apocalypse because Apocalypse is a big character for them. But this was like the antithesis of the Four Horsemen. We just can't get away from that imagery. The anti-apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, so I got to ask, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question, Brian. DC or Marvel? You know, that's a tough one for me because I'm honestly, I think they need to survive. It's not like Apple, uh, you know, uh, versus Android. Uh, and I think most people at uh, DC and Marvel will say both. I personally have grown up being a big DC fan. As, as far as comic reading goes right now, I feel like the best comics going are Batman and Green Lantern with just the best plots. I will give a nod to Marvel's Thor. Um, some of the things that Marvel's doing right now just seems cliche and, and copied, honestly, from DC. I know that uh, they've got Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and uh, Coulson is trying to find out all the ways to defeat superheroes, which Batman did a long time ago. So uh, I guess I lean toward DC, but you got to give Marvel a lot of credit for what they're doing right now. I'll give you the DC. Yeah, when it comes to movies, Marvel has the upper hand, but I think the stories of, of DC characters have always been the more compelling to me. Um, 
So when we look at, obviously, my favorite character is Batman. I know that's cliche, but it is what it is. Same here. Uh, and so whenever you look at, like, the story of Batman, for instance, w- what are some, like, biblical themes you can see that in, in his story? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, Bob Kane, who created Batman, was Jewish, so there's a lot of Jewish influence. I don't know that we see as many specifics as in the other superheroes, but this whole idea of of justice and what does it mean to be just and sometimes having to go outside of what the normal society does, uh, you know, the righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. I think there's very much, he's just very much the proverbial wisdom of this is the way it's got to be. He has a code, which I think is very important that he will not kill. And I think living in the context of Gotham, that makes a lot of sense because it's so depraved that if he were to kill, he would become just like everyone else. And so I see his code being very similar to what the Bible is trying to do. Uh, when, when we look at the Bible and we look at, at, at codes in the Bible, uh, like moral codes, uh, specifically in the Old Testament, uh, which um, is where I want to focus in at, we, we've got in the Old Testament this concept of the law of the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament law? That's a great question. I mean, we, we oftentimes talk about the law. Oh, well, it's the, are we under the law or under the grace as if the law is not what we want to do? And I would argue that we miss out on a lot of that because the word Torah, what we translate law, can also mean teaching or instruction. And I think it's there to teach us and instruct us. And we forget that, you know, the Bible talks about loving your neighbor as yourself in the Old Testament. And one of the key ways that I like to show students how the Old Testament is very effective, many people will look and they'll see oh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they'll say, this is, this is terrible. You know, Gandhi said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But what we don't realize when we read that scripture is in this ancient, we call it the ancient Near Eastern world, we call it the Middle East and modern day politics. But if we look over to the code of Hammurabi, Hammurabi, if it says an, an eye for an eye, if you are an elite person and you knock out the eye of a commoner, you can just pay him off. If you knock out the tooth of a slave, you can give the owner of the slave money because you have damaged their property. But when the Bible says an eye for an eye, it doesn't make any type of class distinction. And so it's actually superior to what the Code of Hammurabi is doing and saying that everyone is treated equally. And I think that's what's so important about the Old Testament that we forget if we look at the two versions of the Ten Commandments, one in Exodus, one in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is particularly important because it says all these laws are here, but they're connected to a narrative that says, remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Don't forget about that. That's important. You're going to obey the law and treat others right. Well, when you say that word, remember, as I was reading your book on, on, on the Pentateuch, that was a, a word, the, uh, I can't remember if it was in the first chapter or in the preface to the book, that you, you talked about how we, we view the law as the, the, the purpose that it was always to bring them back to a remembrance. And, and so, so as you were saying, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but, but continue on. Yeah, I think the remembrance is important. And, and what we want to realize with all those laws is that they are connected to a narrative. It's this larger narrative of salvation that don't forget that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. That's why that you're supposed to treat uh, people who are in your land who, who, may, who may be from uh, a different area. The Old Testament Israelites, they were like, you're supposed to treat them well. You, you treat other people kindly. There's always a narrative with it. And sometimes I think what can happen in the church is we can get so focused on don't do this, don't do that, or do this, do that. We forget about the narrative, and it really all comes down to our testimony. What is the law without the testimony of Israel? It doesn't mean anything, but you put the two together, and it means everything. Dr. Paris, you, you uh, specialize in the Old Testament, correct? Yes. Um, why? 
why the Old Testament? We're no longer an Old Testament church. Why are why did you decide to to base your studies in that? You know, it's a great question. I feel like, you know, I've always just been led down this path. It was kind of interesting. I wanted to take different New Testament courses when I was an undergrad and one of my professors on sabbatical, so I didn't do as much of that. And then when it, it came time uh, for Urshan Graduate School of Theology to be in its genesis and they were looking for people to go and get graduate degrees, they were like, our gaping hole is Old Testament. And I already had uh, some experience having a bachelor's degree in religious studies. And so I kind of gravitated toward that. And I'm really glad that I did it because I really appreciate the narratives of the Old Testament. It's a, a, a favorite study of mine. And uh, we read a book in my class, uh, Old Testament Foundations, and it's by a scholar named Brent Strawn, fabulous guy. And it's called The Old Testament is Dying. And he argues that the Old Testament is like a language and no one is talking about it and no one appreciates it like they should. And uh, if we don't understand the language, then we don't understand the New Testament. We don't understand uh, what it means to be sure. apostolic or Christian. And yeah. so I want to I want to revive the Old Testament. That's my goal. There you go. Yeah, it's the it's the foundation of everything. How did yeah. we get the Old Testament that we hold today? I mean, that's a great question that we don't often think about or consider that there had to have been scribes. There had to have been disciples who, who brought it and kept it going, who kept copying it. You know, we think about um, the Old Testament and Mosaic authorship, but if someone doesn't preserve it and keep writing it and keep copying it, we don't uh, have it around. One interesting thing that happens in the Persian period is uh, that uh, the Persians actually ask all their subject peoples, give us your law. And so that would have been a chance for them to have preserved their law. When we look at, uh, we don't often talk about the authorship of Joshua through Kings, but how do we get that? You have several examples of sources there. The book of Joshua, which is translated the book of the upright, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, the Acts of Solomon. There were lots of sources around. How we kept the Bible was we had um, a lot of, of the monarchy that says this needs to be preserved. And so the monarchy in many ways kept that. But even, even with that, it survived without the monarchy. Monarchy with people copying it and continuing it. It's amazing. It's a, it's a miracle that we have scripture today. So did Moses actually write the law or did it come through scribes? Well, that's a, it'd been a big question and, and something that I've got uh, criticized for because people don't understand what I'm talking about. Of course, when we talk about the law again, we're not just talking about the laws. We're talking about his teaching and instruction. And most people, when they say the Torah, they're meaning Genesis through Deuteronomy. Yeah. So one question I, I would ask to people who ask that question is, did the Israelites know about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before Moses appeared on the scene? No, they would have. They would have. Yeah. How? Oral tradition. Oral tradition, exactly. So we think about Moses and his mother, that she would have told him the stories, and those stories would have been preserved. So when we say Moses wrote it, we're like Moses wrote it, but there was also the source, and God inspired it. God is the ultimate source, but there were multiple source, sources and multiple narrators, parents telling children the stories. And one way we like to talk about it is those are the family stories to get to a national history because they're not yet a nation, but those stories are being preserved. So, and I, I guess the, the reason, in my opinion, where they would criticize um, a, a, a anyone that would make any suggestion that Moses didn't literally write every word is because Jesus says, well, except you believe what Moses said, you cannot believe what I said have said. Uh, but the thing is, with and, and what is your view on that? If someone is like, well, this is the reason why I think this is an issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. We and I'm glad that you're bringing it up because. 
oftentimes people will just say things and there's no discussion about it. So right. I'm glad to have this opportunity. Here's what we have to ask ourselves with pre preservation of, of the text, uh, the whole Bible, not merely the Torah, what Moses uh, wrote is what if there are notes in there that say, like look at the book of Joshua, this stone is there unto this day. Mm -hmm. So, or there's a custom being explained. Let's say we're in 1 Samuel 9 and, and Samuel's being called a seer and there's a note there that says, oh, you know, before times, people who are called prophets today used to be called seers. We wouldn't say that they have done anything to take away scripture, really adding anything, but they have preserved the meaning. And so in preserving the meaning, is it possible that they are actually fulfilling their calling and doing what they're supposed to do? Definitely that can get us into something controversial, but I like to think that, that they felt like, oh, I'm gonna preserve the text, and if I need to put a note in there, I'd like it. And in fact, when I read the Bible, I was like, I wish they'd put more things like that so I knew what it was telling me. Right, uh, so um, <clears throat> when Moses writes, like the book of Genesis, for instance, uh, is that, that narrative to Moses through like the education of his mother? Or do you think at Sinai, God revealed to him the past of Israel's history? I mean, I think that's an excellent question. And I would say, why couldn't it be both? I mean, mm -hmm. I, would, I would hope that he would be exposed to these stories and would have known them and that God was preparing him and, and God could have also revealed it at, at Sinai. And I think this is the way really it should work with our own children. They should have a revelation from God, but I, as a parent, I've got an 18-year-old son, I should also be teaching him. And I hope it's not just me telling the story, but that he gets a revelation. So honestly, I think it's a beautiful thing if we see it both ways. Absolutely. You uh, have an 18-year-old? 18-year-old, yeah. You're not that old. Yeah, well, I am, but... Uh, does he like superheroes? He does like superheroes. He's more into gaming. Oh, He's, gotcha. uh, no, he doesn't look like he has an 18-year-old, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> but that's this generation everybody's into gaming. Tommy was making fun of me on the flight up here. I was, <laughs> I was playing a Nintendo Switch. He's playing Zelda. Is that a yeah. superhero? I, no. I don't know. It's no. pretty close. It's no. almost. Uh, there you go. Yeah, we're, we're Nintendo fans. We do a lot of Mario Karting and Mario Party. <laughs> and Tony was making fun of me, then he asked to play it, and I said, no, you can forget it, buddy. That's right. Uh, so so when we're, we're looking back, because like, like what I was saying before, is some would say that whenever uh, God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he showed him his hinder parts, people say that that was God revealing his past. What is that a viable kind of a place to say, okay, well, there's a biblical example of God revealing the past to Moses? I mean, I'd say that's a possibility. I mean, but it seems to me it's like the glory of God that mm -hmm. really to just nail it down to that thing is almost to, to do a disservice to it because, I mean, he's seeing the whole thing. And we know as apostolics when we experience the glory of God, it's just really you can't even explain it or, or talk about it completely. So I don't discount the fact that he could have gotten a lot of knowledge, but it was knowledge beyond knowledge. It was just something, a special event. I mean, he's glowing. Yeah, right. He's radioactive. <laughs> <laughs> when, when did you first have, uh, when, when were you first filled with the Holy Ghost? I was eight years old. Eight years old? Tell, uh, tell us your story. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, tell us who you are. Well, um, I'm from a small town, Dawson Springs, Kentucky. There are no traffic lights there. My mom was a backslidden apostolic. And so my dad, he had been a part of the Christian church, just kind of went. Uh, they were schmoes, Sunday morning onlys. So a lot of times we would go to the Christian church one week, the apostolic church the, the next week. And my dad, 
kind of said, you know what, I've just been going for my parents. Let's just keep going to the apostolic church. And so we did that. There was a nine-week revival back in the late 70s. I, I know this is, we can't even have a three-day revival now and get people out. But you got to have Mondays off. Yeah, you got to have Mondays off. Well, we had a nine-week revival, and uh, I was in kindergarten, and uh, it was uh, interesting enough about the time the Superman movie was coming out. That was what I was looking forward to. And so my mom got in church in that nine-week revival on a Saturday night. My dad worked second shift at the coal mines. He came the Sunday morning, got saved. We were in church ever since. My dad started reading me the story of Samson. It was kind of like the Superman of the Bible. I ended up writing my master's thesis on Samson. It became the, the cornerstone of my dissertation. And just since I was five years old, I just... So when you're writing on Samson, like what, what are you... you uh, what was like the, the crux of your, your writings on Samson? Well, whenever I read the story of Samson, I loved it since I was a kid, and I would come back to it as a teenager, and there was this really odd part of Samson, though, that no one really talked about to me. I never heard anyone preach about it. Samson goes down to a Timnite woman. She's a Philistine, and the Bible says, but all this was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. And I'm like, you know what, every youth camp I've been to, I've been told that that's wrong. You know, you shouldn't date out of church, don't be unequally yoked together. Why is it okay for Samson to do? And so my master's thesis, I started exploring that, and some people said, well, you know, God was the cause of it, which seems kind of problematic. Other people said, uh, you know, the he there, he was seeking occasion against the Philistines. That's Samson. He's a, some kind of secret agent, which I think gives him way too much credit because he's not that smart. Uh, but then other, other theories about it were, if you look back to the previous verse, Samson says, get this girl for me, for she pleases me well. Well, if you look back in the original Hebrew, it actually says, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So Samson is doing what is right in his eyes, just like everybody else. So he's a microcosm of Israel. In spite of the fact that he's the Superman, he's really the everyman. He's just like everybody else. Wow. Yeah, because like in, in the book of Judges, um, isn't that the whole purpose of the book of Judges is showing what life is like when people do what's right in their own eyes? Exactly, and, and you see the rabbis talking about the fact that his eyes always lead him down the wrong path, and he loses his eyes. But the other thing that I've discovered in studying Samson is uh, we talk about different scenes and you see barren women in the Bible and they always cry out to God or their husbands for a child. Well, if you look at the story of Samson, Manoah and his wife, they do not cry out to God for a child, even though they can't have a child. That's because in Judges 10, God said, don't cry out to me anymore. I'm sick of it. You know, we have this broken record of the book of Judges. They cry out, God delivers them. Well, they don't cry out to God, but God gives them a child anyway. Samson, for all his mistakes, what is his one redeeming quality? He cries out to God. He cries out to God with the donkey jawbone, and he cries out to God at the end mm -hmm. of his life. So he brings something back, and that's why I think he's in the Hall of Fame, God's Heroes of Faith. Oh, for wow. So I saw in your office that you went to Vanderbilt. Is that's, that correct? That's correct. What does your studies there look like? What did, you, what did you do there? I did a Master of Theological Studies. I emphasized in Old Testament, did a lot of Hebrew study, um, my PhD focused heavily on, you know, reading and translating Hebrew. You know, most every time we had a class, like if you have a class on Genesis, there's a translation class. I uh, also did a minor in Jewish studies. That's where I got interested in comic books. I kept, as I did this Jewish studies minor, seeing all these Jews are in comic books. And I did a project called Anti-Semitism in Modern America for my minor. And I realized that one of the big things of anti-Semitism was that no one would hire a Jew to write or to draw for major magazines or newspapers. And so that's why they went into the kind of the, quote, kitty lit yeah, comic stuff. books. Yeah. yeah, and that's really why it happened. And, and of course, you can see that influence in someone like Captain America. He's blonde-haired, blue-eyed, but before he's transformed, you know, he's kind of weak and he's kind of fits uh, the Jewish uh, persona of that time. 
So you teach here at the college. Um, what's the courses that you teach here? I teach at the college in the graduate school. I, mean, I teach Old Testament Foundations, Biblical Hebrew. I teach a research methods class. Um, Books of Samuel will be a class I teach. Um, one of the most interesting classes I teach is called the Megillot. That's the Hebrew word for scribes. So if you look in a Jewish Bible, they don't have the same ordering we do, but they put Song of Solomon, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther together. And all of those books have a holiday associated with them. Um, Esther, of course, is Purim. Ruth is Pentecost. Song of Solomon, interestingly enough, is Passover. So in this class, we do a, a mock Passover Seder. We visit the Holocaust Museum in the class. I've taught it on both sides. Very fascinating to think about holidays and to think about what does it mean to be apostolic in our own traditions. What is, uh, in your opinion, one of the misconceptions of the Old Testament that a lot of people have? That it's, I think the number one thing is that it's just not important, that I just don't need it, I don't need to look at it or Well, that you, just, you just justified what I said earlier about we're no longer an Old Testament church. And is that, is that people who come and take your class and their, your, their studies, is that kind of the mindset you see a lot of the time, is that this is the Old Testament for a reason, not the New Testament? Yeah, I think you see that mindset sometimes, which I work very hard. You know, I try to get them not it, – it, it's, it's an interesting teaching technique and very hard to do. I try to get them not to talk about not Jesus because that's the way we view the Old Testament. It seems like counterproductive, but I discovered when I was studying the Old Testament that because everyone always jumps to Jesus, they miss out on all these wonderful things that the Old Testament is trying to do. And so I found that the way I teach my class and have them read the Old Testament is dying, I've had even – pastors who, who are very much appreciative of the Old Testament would say, wow, I have not really given the Old Testament its full credit like mm -hmm. I should have. There is so much here that we're missing out on. If I had brought my copy of, of your book about the Pentateuch, I, I, could, I could show you where I've underlined almost everything that I've read uh, because there's, there's so many nuggets of, of wisdom and, and, and your study in the Old, in, in the Old Testament. In particular, uh, what I'm still reading in is in uh, the book of Genesis. Right now I'm at the place where you talk about the Joseph story in particular. But uh, prior to that, I have almost underlined the entire book to where it's almost illegible because, <laughs> thank you, because I have underlined almost everything. And even like the, uh, the, the side notes that are in, in that book that are just incredible. Um, when you go back, and one of the things that, that was brought up, obviously, in your book, and we want to we talk about here, it's probably the biggest question people have when, in terms of the book of Genesis is what is the first chapter of Genesis? How are we supposed to, to interpret that? Is that a literal week of, of seven consecutive 24-hour days? Is it, a, is it figurative? How do we view the timeline that seems to be presented in the book of Genesis compared to what the scientists say the timeline of creation actually would have been? Yeah, I appreciate that question because I think it's, really essential and something that I get a lot. So, you know, it says the, you know, the days of creation, can we take that literally? And I actually had a friend who is an apostolic and he's a physicist and believe me, you can be both. And he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he was asking me though, he had people in his church, they had moved to a new place, come up to him and say, um, dinosaurs aren't real. The, you know, these bones aren't real. And I know some people have said Satan planted dinosaur bones. You know, he, he hasn't been busy tempting us because he's been too busy out, uh, you know, bearing dinosaur bones. But he asked me about this. What do I do about this? Because I've seen the dinosaur bones. How do I make sense of this? Well, I think one of the key 
answers to that is in day four. You don't have a sun or a moon until day four, so how can you have what is technically a day? Now, people have, have argued and said, well, every time you know a number is put with the word day, it's just one day. But if you don't have sun or moon, how, how can that be possible? And other examples you can give from Scripture, like the day of the Lord. A lot of the prophets talk about that. It doesn't seem to be one day of destruction, and I'm sure our apocalypticists out there would say, no, it's not one day. They're going to be, you know, in fact, years of, of destruction. But what strikes me about the question is, is how, to me, it's been really recent. I remember as a kid, no one really asked this question. We just all said, oh, God created the heaven and the earth. And we were kind of done with it. You know, mm -hmm. it, was, it was kind of the baseline belief. If you believe God created the heaven and the earth, you were good. Some people would say, oh, it's 6,000 years. Some people say it's millions of years, but no one really cared. Now it seems like some people are, get a little agitated if you don't believe that uh, it's a literal six days. And I don't know that it's productive and is helping us really. So with another question out of Genesis chapter number one, uh, specifically uh, with inside oneness apostolic ranks, is how do we interpret verse number 26 when it says, let us make man in our image? because those that would be of a Trinitarian mindset would say, well, that us in Genesis 1.26 would indicate um, just a, a nod towards what we would later gain revelation of, of a plurality within God. Uh, so how do we interpret Genesis 1 and 26? You know, there have been lots of various possibilities and you know some people said it's the royal we some people said one thing that's interesting about the name elohim is that it is actually plural but it's you know plural to show majesty like you know you you can't uh can't fully encompass god just by by one meaning but what i think i land on is that he was speaking to the angels and we do have in other ancient near eastern texts this idea of a divine council and I think God has this divine counsel with his angels and says, you know, they're, they're observing creation, they're seeing this. I think many uh, rabbis have, have thought this way as well. So we sent you a list of questions, and I, I'm, I'm going through these questions um, kind of a little bit while you're talking. Um, there's a question that really sticks out to me, and I'm very interested to hear your your answer on this for multiple reasons, but what can we learn from the three kings of Saul, David, and Solomon? Uh, that's an excellent question. Well, first of all, let's start off with Saul. I don't think Saul is as bad as everyone says he is. Does he end bad? Yeah, he ends terribly. But let's think about kings to begin with. Go back to the book of Judges. If you read Judges chapter 1, we see this king who he captures other kings and he mutilates them, but he only cuts off their thumbs and their big toes. You get to the end of the book of Judges, what do you have? You have the Levite's concubine who, and this horrific story that we don't like to teach about or talk about, yeah. uh, gang raped, and what does the Levite do? He cuts, he cuts her, her into pieces, he yeah. mutilates her. Yeah. So Saul comes back into the picture. He's from the tribe of Benjamin where this happened. This terrible thing happened with the Levite's concubine. It happened in the tribe of Benjamin. He comes in and God has anointed him king, but he has to prove that he's a warrior king. And so what does he do? He takes an animal, he mutilates the animal and invites the tribes to come and fight. Uh, against the Ammonites, Nahash. And so he's restoring some sort of order that wasn't present in the book of Judges, that we have just gotten to, I don't even, there's not a word to describe what happens at the end. It's heinous, it's atrocious, it's awful. So he does that. And also the good thing that he does is when the uh, sons of Belial, the worthless people, speak out against him when he's anointed king, well, when he wins his victory, everybody says, hey, where are those guys? Bring them out, let's kill them. He doesn't kill them. So I think at that point he's good. So I would say about Saul, Let's not forget he does have some good points, but his yeah. pride took over. 
Okay. What about these other kings? David, I'm, I think we have to go with just his ability uh, to repent, to find that place of repentance, because you look at the story of Saul. Saul got so caught up in pride, he couldn't repent. And I always like to tell my classes that because of Saul's behavior, a good man didn't get to be king. That was Jonathan. I think Jonathan would have been a great king. Mm-hmm. And Saul was given the same opportunity to have a dynasty just like David, but because David repented, he could have uh, this dynasty. And he also had prophets around who would try to get him to do the right thing. I think Samuel and Saul had a pretty rough relationship, but Nathan really knew how to handle David. He had the right kind of man of God in his life. So I want to ask you, the Old Testament guy, this question. Why is David always the canvas that preachers paint from? I think that's a great question. I think a lot of them identify with him. I mean, he's the go-getter. He's the conqueror. He's, he's, he's what they want their churches to be. I mean, mm-hmm. think about all that he does. I mean, he defeats the Ammonites. He defeats the Philistines. He becomes this great leader. I think they see in David what they could be, and they also see I'm preaching a message of repentance. And so it's all kind of packaged into, um, you know, a lot of them are, you know, kind of that A per, type A personality and then mm. the repentance. And I, I just think it appeals to them on so many levels. Yeah. So, so uh, with, with Solomon, what, what can we learn from the life of Solomon? Well, Solomon is an interesting figure because, you know, he starts off so well and, you know, kind of similar to Saul and, you know, goes downhill. But what Solomon does is he fixes a lot of the problems that David didn't address. David had so much blood on his hands. So Solomon comes in and pretty much cleans house right off the bat. And I think we can learn from from Solomon that sometimes that you have to do that. It's not always easy or pleasant. But he allowed his heart to become, go astray. Just because you're wise doesn't mean that you always do the right thing. Wise people don't always, always follow the best course of action. We see this. We see brilliant people just do terrible things and how did they do that you, you know just because you ask for wisdom doesn't mean that you're not going to ignore it when when we look back at, at the time period of the kings so so talk there's one part probably of the old testament that i feel like i'm not as as strong in as far as the narrative goes is is during the times of the kings and the prophets and so from the time of solomon until we get to the exile what are the what are the what is um uh, the the path to their destruction that they begin to to fall apart whenever they they first divide after with, with Solomon's sons and down through until the exile. Yeah, the divided kingdom is a big deal because Solomon actually creates this heavy taxation, and I would say that it's not merely monetary taxation, but it's also something called corvée labor. You have twelve tribes, you have twelve months. Okay, you're one of you tribes is going to work for me. I'm sorry if it's your planting season. I'm sorry it's your harvesting season. I guess grandma and the kids will have to stay home and do it. So that makes them mad. So that sets um, Jeroboam's uh, showdown with Rehoboam, and you get that divided kingdom with Jeroboam the first. But probably one of the most significant parts of what's going on here are the 8th century prophets. And we have four of them. We have Isaiah, who's the most famous. He's in the south, and he's in in the court of the king, probably related to King Ahaz. We also have Micah, who's his contemporary. And they're both known. They each say, you know, 
turn your swords uh, into, into, into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. But then you also have Amos and Hosea who are sent to the northern kingdom. And this is actually not Jeroboam the first who had the divided kingdom, but uh, Amos is prophesying against Jeroboam the second, and the problems are still persisting. And so they're prophesying of this Assyrian invasion coming. But the people who are hearing Amos, they have life pretty good. I mean, they are living in the lap of luxury, but it's because they're oppressing the poor and doing horrible things. And this is why Martin Luther King Jr. oftentimes quoted from Amos and even Isaiah, and he said, let righteousness flow down like streams, that there was a problem. Um, and what we call social justice, that there, this was a terrible thing that's going on here. And Amos is saying, God's going to judge you. He doesn't specifically name the Assyrians, but he's letting them know that they're coming. Hosea does the same. I want to talk a little bit about my favorite Old Testament story slash Bible character and what we can learn from it for today's living. I know you can be either real, have real shallow answers with this because it's very easy, or we could get into a little bit of meat here. Um, but that's the story of Job. It's always been my favorite story, even in the New Testament. I mean, through the whole Bible, my favorite story is, is the story of Job. And, um, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you why, Brian. Uh, back whenever I was uh, probably six, seven years old, the greatest thing you could buy me was Adventures in Odyssey. That was my thing. That's awesome. Yeah, and I wish I, wish I still had the tapes. Uh, yeah, tapes back then. But uh, I remember um, I would push play on my little boom box my grandma got me for Christmas one year, and I would listen to these stories as I'd fall asleep. And I always thought, you know, I'm just going to close my eyes and there's going to be a movie in my head. And I listened to the story of Job. I remember the first time I ever heard it. I was probably six or seven years old. And uh, I couldn't sleep because I was so invested in that story. And I, I went to my dad the next day. I was like, like I had fresh revelation or something. I was like, have you ever heard about this guy named Job in the Bible? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, and it was such a impactful thing to hear as such a young kid for some reason for me. And I would like to hear your perspective on that story. Yeah, I mean, wonderful story. I think we all identify with it because we all have those times where we're trying our best, we're trying to do right, and you know, things just aren't going our way. And sometimes it seems like when we're doing, we're doing wrong, you know, we find ourselves like, it wasn't as tough, but why is it as tough now? One of the big things I like to point out in the story that people don't often think about is you have um, this big doctrine in the Bible, which you see, in Joshua through Kings, you also see it in Proverbs. It's prominent in wisdom literature. The good are rewarded, the wicked are punished. And so, I mean, it's a, it's a theology that works on most cases, but Job is really challenging that theology. It's, we call it the doctrine of the two ways. But we all know that we've seen very righteous people, bad things happen to them. We've seen uh, people who were missionaries who love their kids, who bring them up in the right way, and their kids don't serve God, and we always have these questions. And so we call this theodicy. Why is there suffering in the world? And Job is just a wonderful attempted answer to this. I don't think it's um, very easy. A lot of times when I teach Job in my classes, I'll get comments on student evaluations say like, well, he wouldn't tell us the answer to Job, why it was all going wrong, and you know, why didn't he explain this more? Well, no one knows. You know? uh, but if I had to give an answer about Job, why does God allow suffering in the world, sometimes I have thought that it's the only thing that makes us equal. Uh, it's a sad thing to say you can take the richest person, you can take the poorest man. If both of their kids have an incurable disease, the rich man, he can, he can pour all his money into him. It's not going to help. The poor man, he can yeah. do whatever, but it's not going to help. Well, let me tell you how my little pea brain works. <laughs> I remember, you know, talking to 
I think it was my dad about Job, and I was like telling him, you know, why would God allow all this to happen to him if he was such a good closer or a good close man to God? You know, why would God allow that to happen? That makes me not want to be God's best friend because then God <laughs> will allow that to happen to me. But why do you think that God entrusted Job with such a, a crazy situation that he put him through? I think Job needed to know. I think we always, you know, talk about, you know, God is sovereign. God knows everything. But God tested Abraham. God tested Job. I think Job needed to know. I think maybe Job had got complacent because it said he had he would just offer sacrifices in case his children had sinned. He was always worried about well, well what, what might if, happen, yeah. and uh, he knew all the what ifs. But he did he really know God? Mm-hmm. And what God wanted to do is he wanted to have a relationship with him. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that, that uh, some of the things we're talking about really presents uh, some big questions that that we were asked in 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 the church today. Uh, there was a time where the primary move of the atheist, or at least it seems to me looking back on history, is the primary move was, well, it was creation versus evolution. But now it's secular morality versus biblical morality. And it seems like there's the big question with the, the new wave of atheists is to present uh, God as not as good, but but as an an evil force in the world I, was it daniel dennett or, or or christopher hitchens that wrote the book uh, god is not good or god is not great i think it was christopher hitchens i'm not sure but anyway but they'll they'll point to passages in the old testament like the story of job where job was a righteous man but he went through suffering or they'll go even uh, as far as going into whenever the israelites came out of egypt and they crossed the red sea and they go to possess the promised land well, they destroy the city of Jericho, and then Ai, they conflict with Ai, and they begin to conquer throughout the, uh, the, the land of Canaan, and they would say, well, God authorized genocide on these, these people. How can God be good if he commanded the Jews to, to exterminate and, and perform a holocaust on the, these people? So they call into question God's character because of some of these Old Testament stories. And then that would cause questions in, in people now when they say, well, that's not how I see Jesus. So, so what, what is it that, that the skeptic is not understanding about those Old Testament stories? Well, I mean, I think they're, they're cherry-picking. They would criticize us for, oh, you pick your own certain verses that you talk about. They're cherry-picking as well. So that is a problem. I think one of the biggest things I've seen... In, in reading, again, to go back to the book, The Old Testament is Dying, he brings up a good point that, you know, an atheist like Richard Dawkins will criticize the story of Lot. Look here, Lot is sleeping with, with his daughters. This is terrible. What's the Bible trying to show here? And part of the problem that Christians have today that's pointed out in that book is they don't know the Bible well enough to say, who's ever thought Lot was a paragon of virtue? Nobody. I've never been in a Sunday school class or heard a sermon where everyone said, let's all be like Lot, because he knows what's going on. No one has ever done that. I mean, the whole point of the story is depraved. And so these people are taking everything out of context and in, in doing what they want. I mean, I would also argue, what would the Bible be like without the story of Job? How would I know how to react when something bad did happen? Because we all know it's, it's going to happen. I mean, we could easily say to them, well, what happens when uh, evolution makes a choice that looks like it's going pretty well, and then because of, of chance or, or, you know, a meteor crashing to Earth, it doesn't work out? I mean, <laughs> that, it could, that could say the very same thing could happen in, in their model. 
And so I think it's problematic. And, and finally, finally, to touch on, on Joshua, we don't realize the dog-eat-dog -dog world that they live in. We are, live in this comfortable world. Can bad things happen in America? They do, absolutely. But we're not living in a culture where, um, you know, go back past the book of Joshua, go to the Assyrian age, and you've got Assyrian kings who are bragging in their annals. Yeah, I killed all these people, and I took all their skulls and built a, you know, like a, you know, put them up like a sandcastle or something. It was a terrible world that they lived in. And uh, God had to preserve his people some way. So when we, it's not so much about who they were killing, but they were, God was preserving his people. And it's not comfortable to talk about, and it's not easy. Whenever, uh, um, w with the people that were in the land of Canaan, uh, is there any credence to saying that, that God sent the Israelites in as an instrument of his judgment on those people? And if they receive, now this is, I know this is a big, even a philosophical question in this, but if the Israelites came in and acted as an instrument of God's judgment, would that count as their final judgment? Or did they, you know, I guess there's no other way to say it, but would those, those heathen people be in hell today? Yeah, I mean, we're getting into the afterlife, which is very much New Testament. You know, I do the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I think what we, I don't know that I can necessarily answer that question because there's not about, a lot about the afterlife in the Old Testament. But I think what we can say is that God did not allow uh, his people to come in and conquer the land until the sin of the Amorites had reached a certain level. And you think about while that's happening, Israel is suffering in slavery in the land of Egypt. So there's a lot going on there and God has allowed a lot of sin and God's mercy has allowed a lot of sin. And I think what we really can learn from it is because God judges those nations, it means that there is a universal law that even for people who might be listening to this don't really believe in the Bible, you're still under God's universal law or else God couldn't have judged nations like the Babylonians and the Assyrians. When we look at God in the Old Testament, what made Jehovah unique from the contemporary gods of that, of that era? Great question. I mean, I think, number one, I was thinking, because you asked the question earlier about Genesis 1, how is Genesis 1 different from all of, you know, other creation stories? And one of the ways it would be is that we don't have a war of gods, because there's only one God. What you would see that's called Theomachy. Generally, you would see, like, Marduk. If you're reading the Babylonian uh, creation epic, you're going you're gonna to see Marduk fighting against other gods. So we don't see that. Now, we do see God as a divine warrior, that appears in the Psalms and other places. So you get a little bit of that, but that, that's never there because there is only one God. This monotheism affects how, how they view God and, and think about God. Um, also, I like to point out, we love in, in the apostolic movement, Deuteronomy 6, 4, heroes, the Lord our God is one, Lord, the Lord our God is one. We shouldn't forget when um, Abraham meets Melchizedek returning from the slaughter of the kings and he, and, uh, he El, El Yon is the God. That's the most high God. That's the significant oneness moment right there that we see in Scripture. And so everything is done off the idea of oneness. And I think one of the greatest examples of that is when Moses goes down to Pharaoh in Egypt. God tells Moses, I'm making you a God to Pharaoh. Why is he doing that? Well, because Pharaoh thinks he's a God. And so God is elevating Moses in this special way, even in a monotheistic system. Wow. If you just said that some of our listeners may not be, you know, believing in some of these things we're talking, if if you could reach out to someone who doesn't read the Bible and you could point them out to one specific story in the Old Testament, what would it be? 
Uh, well, that's, well, that's a, that's a, I think I would start with Abraham. I think Abraham is the guy who was called out. He didn't know what he was doing. He was learning about God. Generally, Christians like, oh, Abraham, he's the father of the faithful. He's the greatest. But we're, we're, we're reading back into that. We know the end of the story. But I would encourage him, start reading about Abraham. He doesn't get it. He makes all kinds of mistakes. He lies. He does things that he shouldn't do. And yet God has called him. And could it be that there are people out there that are like, well, I feel like God may be speaking to me. I don't know how, but I'm still doing all these things that are wrong. Why would God speak to me? But even when Abraham's doing something wrong, God will tell people, that's my prophet. Mm. Yeah, that would be. But, but I, I mean, I like, uh, even with, like you were saying with Abraham's story, is that, that, that critical scripture there of where he meets Melchizedek and is given that revelation of, of that how Mel, Melchizedek was a servant of the, the Most High God. Uh, who, who, who was Melchizedek, by the way? You know, that's a great question. You know, king of righteousness. We look into Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament gives us a, a lot of examples that, you know, could be uh, this, is a, this is a manifestation of God Almighty. I had an interesting question a few years ago from uh, someone. You know, he was in the church I grew up in in Kentucky, and he said his Bible study group had started studying about Melchizedek, and they wondered if Shem was Melchizedek. You know, Shem, him, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And I said, well, I've never heard that. I'll start looking at that. And, uh, you know, I looked into it, and several rabbis thought that that was the case, that Shem was Melchizedek. I never would have come up with that, but I found it very fascinating that an apostolic Bible study group and Jewish rabbis had come to an interesting conclusion. I think there's a lot of mystery with, with Melchizedek there, uh, and we don't know who he was, but I'll tell you what I do know. I do know the revelation of El Elyon, the Most High God. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when, when we look at, at, at Judaism at, at today, what is... Um, what is the the uh, relationship of the church and Judaism uh, even through in the New Testament and even to today? Well, I think there are a lot of people today that are trying, Christians trying to be Jews who aren't really Jews, and I think that has become problematic. Uh, I don't think the Jewish people like it. I don't think Christians really like it. I hear a lot of times people will say, well, I'm doing this, and I'm celebrating Judaism like that, I think that is, is a huge problem. One of, one of the things I think that's positive we can learn from Judaism that I would like to tell Christians, a, a big problem I see in Christianity is that we're all about our personal Savior, our individual walk with God. I see in Judaism very much a communal relationship with God, that it's very much about community uh, in, in the Jewish religion. And I think we're always asking ourselves, well, if only, if only they could learn about Jesus from us, what we should ask the question, what can we learn from them? And I would say it's community, that uh, we all work together, we stand together, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should be a community of believers. What can we learn from, you just, you, you said that you would suggest that a reader would listen, learn the story of Abraham. <clears throat> what can we learn from Abraham taking his son Isaac to the mountain to kill him? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, one of the tough questions of all time. Um, and I actually write about this in my, in my dissertation, my book, Narrative of Trees in the Hebrew Bible. People have wrestled with this over time, time immemorial. And people have wanted better explanations. It said God tested Abraham. And, and what I talk about in my book, you know, right off the, off the bat, it's a test. There were later writers, obviously, that didn't make it into the Christian canon or the Jewish canon. They were saying, oh, no, it wasn't really God that did it. It was the prince of animosity. God would never ask anyone to do this. I think, it, once again, context is important. If you live in a culture where you, you have the Moabites and they will sacrifice their children, um, you could have this story 
and God is trying to say that this is the wrong thing to do. And I think we can compare and contrast it to the story of Jephthah, who does the very thing. You know, you know, but it's in the book of Judges. We can almost say everything that Abraham had done by faith and had obeyed God to try to stop child sacrifice in the book of Judges, it all was unwoven. And Jephthah goes back to doing this. I couldn't imagine, uh, now that I'm a father, um, listening to God's voice and he says, I want you to take your child and I want you to take him and sacrifice him. And not only that, I don't know how to explain it to my wife. Yeah. Well, and, and some people have, have argued that's what killed Sarah. That <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, think about it. I mean, the, the one thing that you love more than anything, you're going to take it and kill it, sacrifice it, you know. And that just brings me back to, you know, we, I've said it before on the podcast. I'm so thankful that we no longer live in the Old Testament church where we have to sacrifice things for sins. Like you said that Job did, that he would sacrifice things just in case his kisses. If that was the case, my dad would be sacrificing daily, hourly, <laughs> probably every half hour on the hour, sacrificing something for me. It's but, not enough wood in Arkansas. <laughs> no, well, he's from Illinois. So oh, Illinois, okay. So. But, uh, <laughs> Even bigger state. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I could not imagine. That, that's something that I really wanted to ask you about was Abraham and Isaac because there, I, I have heard a lot of uh, people argue that the case that a loving God would never do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. I, I think we, though— we live in this era and we could we, we could never think. To us, it's in the unthinkable, and we think that it would be the unthinkable for every culture. But the reality is you look at ancient cultures, that was not the unthinkable for every culture. Mm-hmm. And so if it wasn't the unthinkable, God has to address that because I'm sure that people would have continued to do it. Obviously, Jephthah did. And so Abraham is given this terrible, horrible task. But what he does is uh, he creates this revelation that this is a God that doesn't require child sacrifice. And how much does that help his relationship with God? We always view it as a negative. Or, you know, Abraham was just blindly obedient. I don't think he was just blindly obedient. I think he realized he trusted God's character. Trusted God's character. I think he got a revelation of what, what was going on. It's not easy. I'm never well, going to well, say I, that. Even even Abraham says, I, I believe in the text, if I recall correctly, that even if I should sacrifice Isaac, he will raise him back up. Yeah, it's in Hebrews chapter 11. Yeah, okay, that's the that, interpretation of counting that God mm-hmm. was able to raise him up even from the dead. Yeah, I, be, I believe that Abraham had this uh, tremendous faith in God. And, and, and looking at Hebrews and thinking about that, that makes it even more miraculous because has God ever raised anyone up from the dead? For Abraham doesn't know this. I mean, we have the story of Lazarus. We have the story of the widow of Nain's son and things like that. Abraham didn't even have any of those stories. And yet he That's was true. Woman. I never even thought of that. One thing I think I'm gathering from this conversation, especially in terms of people that are skeptical here in today's society, looking back on Old Testament studies, and they are judging their moral standard by what was presented then. And, And there's no context given to what was happening in that day and in that hour. And, and I think that, that one thing that's crucial to have a conversation about, we've had it before uh, on this podcast, is it, not just when it comes to things of the Bible, but cultural things. The way that, that one, the, the modern culture always looks back on the proceeding as though it is the highest form of a moral standard. And sure, there are things we've evolved on and we've gotten better on, but just because that in today we have a different moral standard 
doesn't make the people that lived in a time of a lesser moral standard evil. I mean, we're judging them by an unfair standard. I mean, yeah. when you look at the, the history is complicated is, is what, you know, I'm kind of going back to. We recently, this Monday, was a holiday that at one point was totally accepted, no real issues with it. And now we're beginning to see a pushback against Columbus Day uh, in the of the time of recording. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably Veterans close, Day or yeah, Thanksgiving. Yeah, Christmas. <laughs> but we just came out of Columbus Day. And, you know, regardless of where you stand on that issue, I, what I'm simply pointing out in making even a comment about it is the fact that we are judging an individual who was in a different time and era based on our interpretations we're making of today with modern day morality. Yeah, and I think in some cases you can say that the Old Testament is actually better than what we have in the modern world. I mentioned the eye for an eye and uh, rich people, you know, in Hammurabi's day being able to to pay their way out out of killing someone or poking out their eye. What happens in today's world? Celebrities, sports stars, they commit manslaughter or murder, oftentimes get away with it. Either they pay off the victim's family or they have access to, to better lawyers. So, I mean, uh, who who's worse? I talked about, remember that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Uh, you know, not trying to get political, but look at immigration policy. And, you know, people, if our immigration policy were based on the Old Testament, we probably would be a lot nicer to immigrants. If you're just saying, remember you were slaves in the land of Egypt or you know, mm -hmm. care about the stranger, you know, it's something to think about. Yeah, it certainly. And I think all these principles that, that we read, again, it's Old Testament. I mean, that, that's the thing. That's so, it's so unfathomable to me that people would look at the Old Testament in a way of discounting it because there's so much relevance in it that, that directly relates to where we are today. Like for me, I, whenever I first, you know, I've always been raised in church, but whenever I first really fell in love with the Bible was because of Old Testament studies. Uh, my, my pastor at the time sat down and we started in Genesis chapter number one, and we went over a year and just had touched the book of Judges whenever we were going through it. And, and just out of the Old Testament, even if you're not looking at it as far as, well, how should we directly frame society today or, or whatever, if you're just, if you could look at it as, what because you could teach, teach the New Testament from the Old Testament. I mean, there's so many types and figures and shadows in the Old Testament, in the, the book of Genesis. Uh, for instance, um, I, I believe it was in, in your book, Dr. Paris, uh, I can't remember exactly, um, but there was a, there's a segment there when we talk about the Tower of Babel and how God came down and he saw what the people were doing and he confused their tongues and it caused them to, to disperse throughout the world because of the tongues. And yet we can take that and we can see in Acts chapter number two, almost a reversal of that, of how God has come back down again. And this time he's bringing people together based in the diversity of the tongues. Uh, what are some other examples that would be like that, that would uh, come to your mind? Yeah, one of the things, um, I worked on the Apostolic Study Bible and I wrote a lot of the key apostolic insights as an editor for that, I think when um, Moses has the elders prophesying and it spills out into the camp and, you know, you, you have these guys prophesying and Joshua says, Moses forbid them. And Moses is like, went to God that everybody was, was prophesying. I think we see that, that God wanted to give that. I mean, Pentecost was Moses's prayer answered. We don't often think about it that way, but it's absolutely the truth. And God was foreshadowing a lot of these things that 
um, we just may not uh, see. Um, one of the big things I talk about in, in I wrote commentary on Isaiah for the Apostolic Study Bible is Isaiah is um, his opponents are these drunken priests and they're they're drunk and they say uh, to Isaiah. Uh, we read it as that translation in the King James Version, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, but actually in the original Hebrew, it's like baby talk. It's like lee, 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 you know, things like this. Sounds like baby talk, and they're making fun of Isaiah. Your prophecies are if they were for a baby, and so you have these drunken priests, and Isaiah says, okay, with stammering lips and another tongue, will God speak to this people? What do you have on the day of Pentecost? You have people speaking in tongues and being accused of being drunk. And we don't oftentimes think about that going, that's the context of Isaiah 28. I mean, what a miraculous thing for the apostolic movement to see that that is a type and shadow of Pentecost. And we don't talk yeah. about it that much because we don't read the Old Testament. Right, and because even Isaiah says, this is the rest where which I will cause a weary, weary to rest. And, and how uh, the, the Holy Ghost, when it comes into your life, it brings that sense of comfort as, as Jesus taught in, in John chapter number 14. And, uh, and then, I, you know, that I believe that the, the, uh, the Sabbath day was a foreshadow of the coming uh, Holy Spirit. Yes. Uh, so when we're looking at all these things and we're looking at these Old Testament studies, uh, there, um, there's another thing that, that I wanted to talk about with you that, that I, whenever I was told first about you that I saw kind of remarkable and it's going to be hard to kind of describe because our listeners are listeners. They're not watchers right now. But um, one of your students was talking about how you called the class in uh, and you had pictures laid out on the tables. And, and you wanted them to look at these pictures that you had laid out and find a picture that spoke, spoke to where they are and how, other, how they believe other people saw them and, and made them really, really sit down and think. And so one thing I've seen, obviously, in this conversation we've had, you're certainly a deep thinker. You look at these subjects in the Old Testament, and you really spend a lot of thought on them. What is the importance, then, taking that same line of, of thinking of, let's really think deep about this subject, and turning it onto, let's think deeply about ourselves and how others see us, and, and what does the pictures in that classroom setting, what, what does it mean? Yeah, the class is called Leadership in the Bible, and I'd, I'd love to have any anybody out there listening interested in Old Testament studies, or you just want to take a leadership class. We have lots of opportunities for that. In Leadership for the Bible, we use uh, something called Visual Speak. I use it at uh, a center for teaching. I learned about this, and so I put out all these pictures, and we do three days of these questions, and I say, how do you see yourself as a leader? How does God see you as a leader the next day, and then how do others see you as a leader? And it's really interesting because these pictures have been specifically designed to elicit responses and people will go in and they're like, I don't know why I chose this picture, but it was just the perfect picture for me. Some people actually choose multiple pictures and we write about it and we reflect on it. And I think the pictures are a way of engaging us and getting our higher creative thoughts going. Because if I just ask you, you know, how do you think God sees you as a leader? Someone might say, well, God's called me to be a pastor. I know that I have my calling. But I had uh, one a gentleman, a good friend of mine, I did this, and he, he picked this picture of a skyscraper. You're looking up at this skyscraper, and he said, I feel like this is really what God's called me to do. God wants me to go this high, but I don't know if I can do it. And I don't know that we get that honesty wow. unless we have that picture there and it just brings out. And you just kind of have to experience it yeah. yourself. Sure. So even though we can't really replicate it on here, but if you could lay out a, a hypothetical scenario of pictures 
uh, to our listeners right now. And, and to us. Yeah, even even to us. Like, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be the guinea pigs here. If you could just, you know, give us an example of a few pictures and have us think of, of what they could be saying. Yeah, um, you know, some of the pictures uh, people have looked at, you, you have, um, you know, like um, this desert landscape, but you've got a, a jet rocketing over it. And, uh, you know, God has called you to this high place, and yet you look down and, like, it seems barren. Mm-hmm. But that would be one example of, of what some people have done. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, picture, the pictures are hard to describe because they could be almost anything. I mean, you'll have pictures of, of people eating. You have pictures of people in bandages, pictures of sporting events. It's almost like anything you could see in daily life. But they've actually been tested, psychologically tested, to elicit these responses. We might have to put them on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. It's called would, visual yeah. speak. Yeah, and it's a great thing. I mean, uh, I know some pastors have done leadership conferences with them. They've, they've said, I've taken your class, and I've turned it into my leadership conference. And uh, so, yeah, and I would, I would love to, to bring that to people if they're ever interested. Sure. What, is, what is the key, uh, you think, in, in how a leader should see themselves? I think the key is to be honest. I think we are told like this is what it means to be a leader. You have to do this, you have to do that. But I, I think you have to know your 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 passion and your and your purpose and really know what you're good at. I know sometimes God calls us into things where we're not really in our comfort zone, but I think we have to admit who are we really as a leader. I could look and say, you know what, I wish I were like all these guys who preach these big conferences because it seems like that's the thing in our movement. Yeah, you know, the fiery preachers uh, like that. But, you know, God has really called me. You know, I know I do much better with with smaller groups, and I love leading discussions, and my gifting is more in that. Not to say that I couldn't do the other, but being comfortable with that. And I think sometimes in this movement we get this idea of, oh, there's a certain way you have to do it. It no. makes me important when I'm behind a pulpit with 30,000 teenagers listening to me that you know that's that's what people qualify as successful in our movement sometimes yeah and the other thing I think you know I've I've written a couple of books and I I want what I want to do is I want to encourage writers we need more people writing we don't have a lot written about the Bible you talk about the Old Testament we don't really have a commentary on the Old Testament um, from our publishing house and, and what you guys are doing here. I think this is awesome. This is, you. you know, it's like people talk about, I heard someone say, I've been listening to something on creative thinking. He said, everybody says outside the box. What if you just need a new box? I feel like this is the new box right here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly think this is a platform that's out there that we need to capitalize just like any other opportunity there is. If, if we can take the Bible and bring it to anybody, I think that that's, that's something Absolutely. we should need to do. Dr. Paris, we loved sitting down with you and talking to you today. Uh, two things we want to do before we say see you later. Uh, the first thing we do is give us something that you're reading right now that's not a comic book that you can't. Well, I guess it could be a comic book since the comic hey, book has. What's a your favorite? Good. What's your favorite quote from a comic book? There you My go. My favorite quote from a comic book. Um, hey, look at this tattoo right here. This one. It's <laughs> it's it's actually it's actually a scene um, from uh, a comic book ab- ab- about one of the Watchmen characters, Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. And so Ozymandias is theoretically the smartest man in the world. And right. so he's at this, with these group of heroes, and this old he- superhero comes up to him, and, and you can ask any question you want to the smartest man in the world. And he says, I got a question for you. So Ozymandias, he's prepared. And the guy says, just wanna know, is it Ozymandias or Ozymandias? 
and it just struck me. You got the smartest man in the world, and you're asking him how to pronounce his name. Ask him any other question. And I feel like that with God. You know, sometimes we're complaining to God, and we're worried about, you know, you could ask anything. You could ask anything to God, but you're asking him something that doesn't really matter. What's your favorite, Tony? Um... Do you feel in control? And that's that's from the movie, but okay. Uh, mine is uh, actually in the Dark Knight Returns. Whenever um, the the kid, I think he's it's the heir to the Wrigley uh, Gum Fortune, or something like that. I can't remember exactly what family they were from, but there's this kid kidnapped, and the uh, mutant people, a gang that are have him kidnapped. Batman comes in and he saves the kid. Well, before he saves the kid, one of the guys has a gun held to its, the kid's head and says, "Don't come any closer. I'll kill him. I promise. I'll kill him." And Batman saves the kid and like breaks the guy's arm. And he he says, "The only way that Batman can say, I believe you." <laughs> That's great. What a nerd. Anyway, uh, so. Give us something that you're reading right now that's very impactful. Um, I mean, that's a tough question. I've got a lot of, of different things that I'm reading. I think one of the, the big things I just set down, um, I think the book is called Nothing to be Envied. It's about uh, lives in North Korea. I, I'm interested in um, religion and politics. And so uh, North Korea has a religion called Juche. And so someone had suggested this book to me. If you, one of the first pages of this book, if you look at North Korea in satellite image, you look at South Korea, it's all lit up. North Korea has virtually no lights. And I was just thinking about, you know, not only is it lack of technology, but complete darkness that these people have. And it just really struck me, um, just terrible. One of of the most um, alarming things that I've ever, that I've seen uh, I can't remember if I watched it on Netflix or I just found a, a documentary on YouTube. There was a, a crew of, uh, they were either American or they were from the UK, but they were um, uh, eye surgeons. And they donated their time to North Korea to go in to perform cataract surgery on the population because they're kind of, they, especially, I don't know how things have changed over time. Uh, this was whenever Kim Jong-il was still the um General Secretary of North Korea. Um, whenever they they went in at the time, the medical procedures in North Korea were kind of behind the times, and the only way you could get video equipment inside the country of North Korea was for medical purposes. And so they brought in these cameras to document the surgeries they were performing on people's eyes, and um, obviously they would flip them on whenever they. Um, had an opportunity that the guards that not the guards but the the overseers of their project that from they were state sponsored of north from north korea when they weren't really paying attention they would cut the cameras on and they would video things about people they would talk to them in their homes about what how they saw the uh, their great leader and they would always speak very highly of of the 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 kim family and uh, and deify them uh kind of it was kind of clear that it's a lot of what they the way they would see them yeah it's very much father son and holy ghost that's the way they view them yes very very much very alarming and to the point that it got more uh alarming to me because after they performed the surgeries they called them into a room that was actually about the room uh, size of the room that we're in right now and actually was a very similar layout where there were rows upon rows of seating with people with eye patches on because they just had these surgeries done so they would call them to the front of that room. And so where the projector, Tony, the screen is, 
here in this room would be where they have two pictures of, uh, it was Kim Jong-sun um, and Kim Jong-il at the very front of the room, which Kim Jong-sun, Kim Il-sung, I'm sorry, was the, uh, the founder of North Korea. And so they would go up, they would take the eye patches off of their eyes, the, these Western doctors, and they were videoing their reaction to the first time they've been able to see in years because their eyes had been totally covered over uh, with cataracts and they were totally blinded. And the first thing that they did was they would, fairly reserved, would walk to the front of that room and before those pictures they would clap or lift their hands and pledge their allegiance to the images in those pictures. And whenever I saw that, it would just kind of, you know, what was speaking to me was, was like, man, it, you see how where um, Christianity is, is, from my understanding, is outlawed in North Korea, and yet they have filled the void with the deification of these leaders to the place that the way that we respond when God does something in our lives is the exact same way they responded, even though these dictators actually were adverse to them getting the medical procedures that they needed so they could see, but yet those were the figures that they gave their allegiance and their thanks to for the opportunity to see again. And, and, and that to me was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in terms of politics and church, is what happens when a secular society fills the void that isn't there because they have taken Jesus Christ out of the picture or don't allow him in the picture to begin with. So the last thing we want to do before we say goodbye for the final time <laughs> is give you a final thought. Anything that God's dealing with you about or something that's been on your heart heavy that you would like to share with our listeners. It could be something we've covered. It could be something we've missed. If you want to talk just about a word of encouragement, if you want to talk about New Testament, we can do that. <laughs> but just tell us what's been on your heart lately. Yeah, and I think I've been uh, struggling to learn a, a tough lesson. Um, you know, in this world, you know, lots of things can happen, and uh, we can get focused on um, blaming this or blaming this person or that person. And I think God's been speaking to me lately. You know, you look at John chapter nine. Who did this sin that this man was born blind? Did he do it or did his parents? And Jesus says, no, that's not what it's about. It's for the glory of God. And yeah. God's really dealing with me. Um, we live in a society that likes to blame others and is always looking to put down others. And I just felt like God doesn't get any glory from that. Those people that Jesus was talking to were trying to blame someone. Jesus is like, wait a minute, this is for the glory of God. And I'm trying to learn that lesson. Mm -hmm. Don't blame other people. Don't blame situations. Because God has a purpose and wants to be glorified here. And whenever you're doing that, you're not glorifying God. But I got to tell you, it's not an easy lesson to learn because we yeah. are all very human. And so you have to pray for me that I do learn the lesson. But I do hope that God was glorified uh, through this. And I thank you for the opportunity. No, I, I, I believe he has, man. Um, I, I think that kind of in line with what you, you just said there, that there is unknown purpose behind a lot of things that we face and a lot of things we see. Uh, when, when you look back and you can go back and you can find Old Testament uh, examples of, of things as like, what was God doing through that story? What was God's whole purpose in, in, in why they went through what they went through? And even in that time frame, I'm sure those individuals are like, why me? Why am I going through what I'm going through? Well, what it is is behind the scenes, there is an unknown purpose 
because there's some questions of life that can only be answered in time. And so I, I think that w- when we look at our lives right now, where we are right now, we shouldn't judge our time and say, well, it's, it's in this temporal um, little frame of just, um, you know, my, my lifespan. It, it's just about what I'm going through right here, right now, in this exact moment. But I think that we, if we could just see what God sees and see from a higher vantage point, and we could begin to see the tapestry and, and the future that's be, beyond us, that there is an answer of why right now in this current moment you're going through what you're going through. But to find the answer, we just have to move a little bit forward, further. And so if you're ever going to get the answer, if you're ever going to gain clarity, you have to, to just survive through what you're going through. You've got to make it through to the end of the story because it's at the end the purpose is revealed. You've been listening to The Crucial Conversation. Last question. Joker or Bane? Joker.